0: So, um, I was just explaining to some folk before church that I have this ability, uh, I I think years of church and parenting, um, someone was worried that I'd be distracted by kids in church. I actually don't even hear them. I get in the zone and I don't notice. If that's not you and you find kids distracting um, in church, I actually have no advice for you apart from we were all kids once, <laughs> suck it up, um, I'm sorry, forgive me, uh, and that just is. So don't worry if your kids uh, are, are making noise in church. I, it doesn't distract me. Sometimes people worry that it's distracting the preacher. It really, I actually just tune out. Um, there's something there in that about my parenting as well that we probably don't want to explore. I talk enough about that with my therapist. Um, Let's pray. Uh, Our God, thank you that you are in the business of changing lives uh, for the better. And so help us learn this morning uh, how you do that so that we can be changed and be better human beings and closer to you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, so here's the question: If you're a person of faith, and, and you may or you may not be, we always have a mix of people here, and, and, and people are on a, on a journey, a spectrum of commitment and beliefs. But one of the core beliefs of people who are of faith, who follow Jesus, is we believe that God changes us and changes lives. Now, if you believe that, uh, there's a, it, it's a wonderful, and you go, yes, that's great, that's fantastic. But what I've discovered in life is the longer I go on, that belief also raises certain questions, doesn't it? Like, why do some people believe and have their lives changed and others don't? Like, that's confusing, right? So um, my brother and I were both teenagers. We went to the same youth group. We were growing up in Cape Town. We were raised in the, in the same family. And uh, we both had the same kind of initial encounters with God as teenagers. My brother gave up. I didn't. I'm here. My brother ended up a Muslim. And you go, why? How? Uh, There are many people I look at in the world and I go, "Why? why hasn't God changed their lives? And maybe you have that. Maybe you feel that about yourself. You go, I want to believe. I want to have faith. I want to experience God a little more, but it just doesn't seem to work for me. Or maybe you have that about people you really, really care about. Your husband, your wife, your parents, your grandkids. And you go, oh, I just, oh, why? Come Lord, why don't you do this? So anyway, Uh, Acts chapter 16 gives us a glimpse into a couple of people whose lives are changed, bunch of people whose lives aren't changed and gives us some hints about how we can maximize the possibility of l- people's lives being changed. We can never guarantee it, but we'll look at whose lives are changed, a couple of folk who aren't, and then what sort of behaviors should we engage in that are going to, um, as it were, raise the possibility that, that, that people's lives might be changed by an encounter with God. So here we go. Um, and, and by the way, this is really important. Uh, it's really important for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of which is, I don't know about you, but I look at our world and I go, everything is better with God, isn't it? Like, if Christianity is true, if Jesus is who he said he is, it's just unbelievably brilliant news, and we all need it. I read this great article in The Australian uh, yesterday, Uh, about in the magazine about how miserable gen x women are did anyone else see that so, hands up, if you're, if you're born roughly between uh, 19, sort of early 1970s and 1990, you're a Gen X, right? And, uh, and the research shows that this is a generation of women who've been taught they can have everything, they should have everything, they can accomplish everything. And you know what, even though on every object of measure they are better off than any generation of women before, um, both absolutely and relatively, they're more miserable than, they, than previous generations and they're more miserable than men. So there's something about the recipe that our culture offers us for life and joy that just isn't working. Because I think actually we need God in the middle of it. And, and that whole I look at that's my generation. I look around and I go, that's right. These people who on the surface have everything, yet are actually really pretty miserable. And why is that? Well, they need God, and then how do you how do you get them to see that they need God rather than crystals and you know other stuff or more work or more money or a new partner? Um, so this this is feels very very important for me personally for the people I care about in our far broader culture. So, whose lives are changed? Well, the first person's pretty easy, right? Um, They come along, and uh, the first person is Lydia. And uh, so Paul and his little missionary band are traveling around, telling people about Jesus. They turn up. Uh, and um, they go to a place of prayer, as we see in uh, Philippi on the Sabbath. They go down. There are people praying next to the river. They would often pray next to the river as Jewish people because they could perform their ceremonial cleansings. Particularly, women uh, could perform if they, you know, the ritual cleansing after menstruation, so that they could pray. So they might have gathered their group of women. Paul goes in. He starts talking to them, and there's Lydia. And she's a dealer in purple cloth. Uh, So who is Lydia? Well, Lydia is... um, Lydia is uh, the first person whose life has changed Is Lydia. So let's do... She's a woman. Uh, The other thing we can say is she's a business person. She runs her own business. She's a dealer. So she's a business person. uh, And uh, she's pretty wealthy. Right? She has her own household, she runs a business, she's got servants. So here's this woman, uh, wealthy, sophisticated, uh, successful woman. And what happens? The Lord opens her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Gen X women uh, referenced in the Australian article, and all of you who are both Gen X and aren't Gen X, and pretty much most people you and I meet in this part of Sydney are, uh, there are many, many Lydia's amongst us, aren't there? The Lydia's are the, of the world are those who... Um, and she's also religious. That's the other point I, I meant to mention here. So she's, um, uh, she's religious. She's there praying with these ladies. So she's an observant, uh, religious person. And isn't that true for us? You look around. Man, go to your coffee shop up and down Darling Street. Uh, Look at the people you work with. They're the Lydias. Outwardly got it all together. Uh, Often very religious. Devoted to the cult of self-improvement. Devoted to um, the worship of success. Devoted to um, the worship of family and the idols of um, having everything, right? Uh, And sometimes, if you're like me, You can feel very inadequate in the face of Lydia's and you can go, oh, you know, what have we got to offer Lydia's of the world, you know, the message about a, you know strange Jewish guy who lived 2,000 years ago who who was a bit of a failure in life and got crucified and then we claim he came back to life but no one can see him and uh, we claim the Holy Spirit's here but we don't really get it and actually most Christians are pretty miserable and average. We don't, you know, our church isn't much chop. Um, I'm pretty inadequate. This Lydia next to me is more successful at work and she's skinnier and she's earning more and she's got a better, better adjusted kids um, and her marriage seems to be far better than mine, so what have I got to offer her? Yeah, that's a good question. you got to offer her Jesus. And you go back to the first century and you go, even people like that, God can open their hearts and they need Jesus. And you go, that's, the, that's it. Yeah, and on the surface you go, we have so little to offer. But actually, this text says we have God to offer The Lydias and the Lydias of the world need Jesus just as much as any of the other characters in the Book of Acts. The slaves and the downcast and the downtrodden and the exiles, like the Lydias of Sydney, need Jesus, and some of them will have their lives changed by Him. So don't give up. Don't feel inadequate in the face of the Lydias, because you're not selling yourself and you're not selling the church. You're simply saying, I have found a great God. And I know it sounds crazy, and I know at one level it's dumb, but it's actually everything you, Lydia, really need so that you're not a statistic in the Australian who on the, outward, on the surface has it all, but underneath is actually miserable. Uh, so, Lydia. Uh, but Lydia's not the only one. Um, though she's certainly the the second person whose life is changed by god in this passage can anyone remember who it was think back to that most spectacularly the jailer that's correct um uh, now um the jailer pops up here and uh he's guarding them now who's the jailer right and the jailer's life is is transformed right he He's there. He wakes up. He sees the prison doors open. They're all going to escape. He thinks he's going to kill himself to avoid the shame and the dishonor. And uh, then um, he says the jailer comes. He calls for lights. He brought, brings him in. He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And uh, the jailer brings him into his house. He's filled with great joy because he came to believe in God, he and his whole household. Now again, um, this book, Damascus, has a great picture of another story when tells one of the chapters is from the perspective of the jailer who was looking after Paul at the end of his life in Rome. Paul was in house arrest in Rome for a long time. And there's a brilliant chapter in there from the perspective of the jailer looking after Paul. And he does a brilliant job of describing what a Roman soldier was like. So let me tell you what a Roman soldier was like. Uh, Brutal. Brutal. So jailers were mostly retired Roman soldiers. So that, that actually is who they were. So, so you retired, you're injured, you came back to town, and if you were successful and you were well-connected, you could get this job as a jailer. It was secure, you got paid. So you're a mid-level civil servant, and you are tough, and you have led a brutal life. You have spent your working life killing people, Using a rape as a systematic instrument of conquering and oppressing people, you have massacred people, you have crucified people, you have beheaded people, you have disemboweled people, you have you have you have wiped out whole villages because you could, like. It's hard for us here to imagine the level of brutality that hand-to-hand combat entailed, and the Romans were the masters of it. They were, they were all-powerful, and uh, that was the jailer. And now he's maybe, you know, maybe he's 35, 40. He's back. He's got a family. He's doing this job, and he has seen it all. He has done it all. He's a long way from someone who you think would undergo a profound religious conversion. Don't you reckon? And yet, here he is, in the jail, doing his job, and God shows up through Paul and Silas, and he goes, what must I do to be saved? So, I don't know if you have anyone in your life like that who's just tough, Seen it all, done it all. Cynical, hard. Uh, maybe you don't. I feel like I. That was my, when I read that. I go, that was my dad, right? That was my dad. My dad started off his life as a mercenary. Uh, you know, that was my brother. Tough. That's the Vietnam vets in your background. That's the kids who got into gangs and drugs. Uh, Those are the people who've um, done it tough and fought their way through life and now got to a place where they're making life work, but they just carry so much baggage. and They're hard. They're the the hard men and the hard women. You don't get lots of those around here, or actually they're just pretty sophisticated. (laughs) I mean, you actually do... mm. Actually, there's a bunch of thugs around here who've lived very hard lives who just now have a veneer of wealth and sophistication because they've managed to make a lot of money. And we can look at those people, that, unlike the Lydia's who on the surface seem to be all good and successful, we can look at them and we can go, they are so hard, they have done so much, they are so far from any sense of connection with God or religion, there's no hope for them. And this text says, yes, there is. Yes, there is. Hard people still need to connect with God. Hard people's hearts damaged people, post-traumatic stress disorder, suffering veterans of trauma and violence and heartache can still have their lives changed by God. That's good news. I look at that and I go, yes! Now, it didn't seem to work that well for my dad and my brother, though we don't know at the end, the final analysis. But I never gave up hope. And we never should. And we never should. No one's beyond the reach of God. Not the Lydias, not the jailers of the world. Not the people who seem super successful and not the people who seem so tough and self-reliant or bad and evil. No one's beyond the reach of God. So that's the good news. Isn't that great? Does that feel encouraging? Or are you just sitting there going thinking about all the miserable people in your life and going oh jeez! <laughs> now don't do that it's encouraging however now that's the encouragement let me now give you the discouragement if if uh, so there's so there's uh so this second person is the jailer right and he's a hard man hard you might even say evil the sort of things roman soldiers did uh, but he came to know god and that's an amazing thing right um, what then? Uh, but there are a couple of characters in here who don't have their lives changed, aren't there? Uh, so as you think back to the story, who didn't have their lives changed by, this same message, the same encounter with God. Not the, not the jailer. Uh, so there's this funny story of this woman who's the slave girl. And she might only have been 13, 14, we don't know. And she's possessed by a demon <laughs> an evil spirit. And she goes around um, distracting everyone from the message of Paul, saying, these are the men that, you know, she keeps us up for many days. It's quite funny. There's a bit of humor in this. And eventually Paul's so annoyed, he turns around, he casts the spirit out of her. And, and you'd think that would be good news, right? You'd think everyone would look at that and go, ah, oh, blessed relief. Whew, we can talk again. <laughs> the noise is gone and she's free, uh, God is a good God, and why shouldn't I follow this God? You'd think that's what everyone would do, but of course that's not what happens, is it? So who, who doesn't respond? Uh, well, it's um, her owners realize that their hope of making money was gone. So they hear the same message, they see the same stuff, they have the same opportunity, and they say no. Why? What do you reckon's going on for them? Let's pretend that's not a rhetorical question. They're focused on what they'll lose. That could be why. I'll put it really simply. They loved money more than they loved God. So so um It's this truth that having our lives changed by God, coming to faith, is never just an intellectual exercise. It's what the old theologians call, first and foremost, a challenge to our affections or our loves. What do you love? Are you willing to shift your love from this thing to God? Right? And they didn't want to lose this thing. Uh, so the owners, and I think their biggest problem was their love of money. That's, that's all they could see. I've lost my money. Um, now, isn't it really great for you and I that we can come to know God and have our lives changed without losing what we really love? our money <laughs> that's awesome isn't it like we can be rich and still be Christian doesn't cost us anything I mean it will take up a collection in a little while and maybe you'll chuck in a bit of dough and maybe some of you'll put in quite a bit oh I think no, I don't think the text is really clear, and the Bible is really clear that your life and my life won't be profoundly changed by God if I love money more than I love God. At best, what I'll do is I'll, I'll add Jesus or God or faith or religion as a, a part of my overall money-loving life. I'll, I'll, I'll embrace Jesus as a bit of kind of divine life insurance or a bit of spiritual um, therapy or help on my journey to be well self-actualized. I need a bit of religion. I need a community. I need Jesus. That's all good. And maybe in the future, things will be bad. So I'll, I'll, I'll tick the box with Jesus. But, but actually, what I really love is, is money and the control and the security it gives me. And... Um, and you know what the text says? Actually, if, if you fundamentally love money, you fundamentally can't love God, and your experience of God changing your heart is never going to be life-changing. Wow. <laughs> so before we... And, and now, um, isn't there so many people that you and I know in the world? Like, actually, practically, what do people love? In the world, well, so much of it's like they they just it's money. The it's um, I'm reading another good book on um, uh, like it's this massive theological and economic history of capitalism for the last three hundred years, and and it argues that 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 actually capitalism is really just it's it's the most significant and powerful religion in the world today. It's all conquering, irrespective of your philosophical, uh, political, or economic views. Whether you're uh, a socialist communist in China or uh, a Wall Street trader in New York, you actually are still worshipping money. And and this this philosopher, theologian, does quite an interesting job of tracing how the worship of money has permeated and subverted every other religion, right? Uh, And that's true. And so I look around my peers and I walk down Darling Street or I walk down George Street and I go, why don't people want to know God? Because in their heart of hearts, they're not prepared to give up their money because they love money and what it can buy more than they love God. And I find it really easy to be critical of others in this regard. Because the more I'm critical of them, the, the, the more it just, you know, takes attention away from my own love of money. <laughs> and we Anglicans are very good at that. And we, like, we like bagging out the Pentecost. Now, this is a little in If you're not particularly religious, this is a little in-joke. Not joke, a little in observation. We as Anglicans are very good at criticizing the Pentecostals for their love of money. Prosperity teaching, hill song. they all make too much money. I actually think as an aside, that's just envy because they're doing a whole bunch of stuff right and they're positive and they're happy and they're growing. Uh, we as Anglicans, on the other hand, we aren't quite as crass as that, but what we actually do is we, we completely just baptize middle-class professional respectability. That's what we do. Come join our church continue to worship money in your law firm in your medical practice do all of that but but you can come and be a good anglican and in fact we'll probably put you on a committee or two and we never we never look in the mirror and go oh what do i really love (laughs) am i am i a lydia whose heart gets profoundly changed by god or i'm actually an owner of a slave girl whose own heart is actually enslaved to money the owners were more slaves than their slave girl was and just as paul cast the demon out of that slave girl oh my goodness they needed that love of money to be cast out of their lives and I mean, because it's an outrageous thing to say you should, you should love God more than money. I totally get why that's so hard. Because let me ask you a question. Who's going to pay your mortgage at the end of the month? God or the money in your bank account? You can't see God, but you can see the money in your bank account. Isn't that right? Like, Let's be honest. Who's going who's to provide for you in your old age? Secure your retirement Who's going to look after your kids? Who's going to help your kids get a foot into the Sydney property market? God? I don't think so. That's going to be your career, your hard work, your savings. Your kids are going to... The only hope they have is to make their money the old-fashioned way. Inheritance. I get... Like, that's real, isn't it? Like, do you feel... I feel the force of that, and it's... So there we go. Now, what's the answer? good question. Uh, there is a, um, uh, a second group of people who also don't get, uh, don't respond to Jesus and don't have their lives changed. Who are they? It's the magistrates and the rulers of the, of the town. They hear the story, they've listened to it and what do they respond to? Well, they, they just go, nah. He's just, these are just troublemakers. Let's, let's flog them. Let's put them in jail. Let's get rid of them. Why? What stops the magistrates having their lives changed? What, what, what do you reckon they love? Yeah, that's it. And the magistrates, they love power. Because actually, believing the message that Paul and Silas and his merry bunch of preachers had to tell was profoundly threatening to their worldly power. It was a real risk that that they would lose their power because there could be a there could be a riot they could they could lose you know this christianity was being seen as being anti uh, the roman ideology anti the emperor so to follow jesus was a, an enormous risk to their power and as i get older i discover that the love of power is even more seductive than the love of money. As we get older, and you will know this if you're at that stage, you realize it's not money itself that's that appealing. It's the power that money gets you. In your, in your 20s and 30s and 40s, it, money is about money, and, and your power is, 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 is leveraged to get you money. In your 50s and your 60s, and you get older, your money is leveraged to get you power. And, and if you love power, you will find it extraordinarily hard ever to come to worship a God who became completely powerless and who said the greatest power in the world is the power of sacrificial death, of utter vulnerability, of giving up everything for the good of those who hate you. Like that is a crazy unthinkably dumb countercultural message and there it is you love money you love power it's going to be very hard for you to encounter god and to come to faith and again it's easy to point to people out there and go well those lovers of power so that i don't have to look in the mirror and i don't have to say huh oh how much am I really still like a magistrate? I love the power that I have. And I maybe just add Jesus as a bit of... just a bit of an add-on. And God says to us, no, if, you, if you're like that, don't be like the owners of the magistrates. Be like a Lydia or a jailer. How does that happen? Well, how can anyone then be saved? Like, that's the... I don't know about you, but if I... Um, and maybe I've effectively done this, which is why you're all looking a little like, oh, why did I come to church today? <laughs> so it would be much more fun going to a coffee shop and working out what I'm going to do for work to accumulate more money and power tomorrow. Instead, I'm here being beaten over the head about money and power. This is a dumb choice. Um, I get that. I'm feeling that. Why am I saying this? It's really quite depressing when I look at my own heart. Uh, it really is. Uh, people sometimes criticize me. I know you'd find that hard to believe. Um, but sometimes people are critical of me. And they oh, Mark, you're such a terrible person. I go, yeah. And I say, you don't know the half of it. Like, really, you don't? Oh, Mark, sometimes I don't like the things you say. I go, mate, you you only hear me once a week. You've, You've got to hear the thoughts in my head all the time. It's bad in here. It's bad in here. So I look at that and I, "Oh, who on earth can be saved? like if this is the problem, Lord, how do I get to be a Lydia? How do I get to be a jailer? How do I come to that place where I actually embrace God? Well, it's really pretty simple it's really quite simple um, you've got to have some people who tell you about Jesus, right that's what Paul and Silas did so uh th- th- it's pretty it's pretty simple but but incredibly complicated so how does this happen you've got to have people to proclaim and I think that's what that's, that's what Paul and S- they were just telling people about Jesus and that's what cut through uh, people to tell you and then you've got to believe and then um God will change hearts. That's, that's the kind of formula, right? And and I think part of, you know, like part of what I'm doing this morning is I don't just need to be told the good news of Jesus once. I need to be continually reminded of it. So every week, every day, I can turn afresh to him and say, "Ah, oh, forgive me. Every day I can turn afresh and cling to Jesus and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually way more like, um, like the magistrates and the owners of the slave girl than I am like the jailer in Lydia. Like I'm way more, that's in my heart, but I want to be like this. So Lord, come, forgive me. I want to trust you. I need you to tell me that. I, I need people to tell me that, hey, Mark, loving money is not going to get you eternal life. i I need people to tell me mark loving power is not going to save you it it, it pretends that it will but love jesus and and you know what's interesting in this story is the people who were doing the telling were extraordinary human beings who lived it out consistently i mean where did the jailer come to faith it was watching paul and silas having lost everything because they love Jesus more than money or power. So they are—they have no money, they have no power, they are, they've been tortured, they're in jail, and they are still worshipping and praising God. And the jailer sees that and goes, yeah, for real. So I need you all to be like Paul and Silas to me so that I can believe. That is, I need you to the best extent you can to not love money and not love power and no matter what miserable stuff happens to you in life never give up on God always be full of joy in him always be praying always be worshiping God and when I see that in you and I hear that message from you it helps me believe and you need that from me and we need that from each other and our world around us needs that from us as a church that we actually live out in the context of suffering and hardship, that we love Jesus more than money and more than power. The uh, church in Iran, according to some research I've read, is the fastest growing church in the world. And the church in Iran is growing because it's led by women, who have no money and who have no power, and in the context of regular threats to their lives and martyrdom, will tell their Muslim friends and family about Jesus, even when it costs them their life. Because they're living it out. That's what we need. I need people like that in my life. You need people like that in your life so that my heart will continually be changed and the city of Sydney needs churches full of people like that. And that's hard because no one wants to live like that. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to give up my money and my power. And the problem we have in Sydney is you pretty much don't have to. And then we're just weak and flabby and our witness is powerless. And you go, no. Got to find ways where we tell people about Jesus with integrity and consistency, and then you just got to believe. And what I love, like the, the jailer didn't know much; he just said, "What must I do to be saved? Call on the name of Jesus." Says, "Okay, Jesus saved me. That's it. It's really simple. Just, just call out to Jesus, and then God changes hearts." That's how it starts. It's God's job to change hearts. So why did my father, he was a hard man, and my brother was a hard man, why, why in their lifetimes, as far as I know, did they not come to faith? I don't know. But I never gave up praying for them because it's ultimately God's job to change someone's heart. And God is in the business of changing hearts. Like you're all here. God has changed your hearts and he will continue to do so. And that's why we pray and fast through February. We come to God and we say, Lord, have mercy on the people we love. Have mercy on ourselves. Change our hearts. Soften our hearts. That's why we do it. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, uh, thank you for the, this story. Thank you for these people. Both those who positively did have their hearts changed and responded to you. Thanks for Lydia and for the jailer. And also thank you for the negative example of the magistrates and the owners of the slave girl that we can see what to avoid and help build us up to be a people individually, families, uh, in, our, in our parenting and our grandparenting, um, and to be a church where we uh, give ourselves wholeheartedly to you. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.